Hey, welcome home to Cassidy. My name is Stephen Mitchell, and it is a great joy to be here with you, to be able to celebrate what God is doing, what God continues to do in and through us, that God moves us to action, that God inspires us to action by increasing our faith. My hope is that you are joining us prepared to go deep into uh, our understanding of who God is and what God is doing and why God is doing it and why we are called into it and what it means for us even today, 2,000 years later. We've been on this message series, this worship series called Gospel, where we're taking a deeper dive into the gospel message. What is the story of Jesus, and why does it matter? What is the story of Jesus, and how does it inspire us? How does it make us move forward? So if you are new here, you picked a great time to join us, to to be a part of this, to, to learn a little bit more about Jesus and about us so that together we can go forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our deepest desire is to grow in relationship, to to find that hope, that spark of joy that Jesus offers to us. Uh, It is because of Jesus that we have life, not just a little while, but eternal life, and and it's because of Jesus that we come together. So uh, if you are new here, know that we recognize we're not perfect, but we know the one who is and that's Jesus Christ, and we desperately want to be more like Jesus, so we want to invite you on a journey to come with us, to grow with us, so that together we can understand more about who God is and and what God is calling us to, and then go with us into the world to make a difference for Jesus Christ. If you're following along this week, we're talking about the transfiguration. It's the picture of the mountaintop. Uh, we'll get to it, but I, I'm excited that we get to, uh, we get to continue in worship uh, along the storyline of the gospel. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I had a, uh, several superheroes in my life, none of which had anything to do with the church because I grew up outside of the church. Uh, but uh, I had on my walls, I had pictures of skateboarders and surfers. Uh, and the problem was I, I was horrible at both of those things. Uh, surfing, I, I lived in Houston, Texas, and Galveston uh, Bay is there, and it never has any waves. Uh, and, and then uh, skateboarding, I just kept falling off and hurting myself, and I didn't like it. Uh, my friend had a real skateboard, uh, and so he would do tricks and things like that, or try to do tricks and things like that, and I would just watch in awe. Uh, and because every time I got on my skateboard, which was one of those little weird blue skateboards that had the end on both sides, if you know what I'm talking about, you feel my pain because you fell off a lot because it's not meant to be really ridden. Um, but there was this guy that kind of inspired kids of my age to be more interested in skateboarding. His name was Tony Hawk. He was a little bit older than me, and so at, at, when he turned professional at 14, it caught our attention. Uh, we were like, wow, that's, that, that guy is cool. He bought his first house at 18 because he was that good at skateboarding. Uh, And we were all enamored by that. Tony Hawk won 16 X Games medals. Uh, He has, uh, has for 12 consecutive 
years. He was the national skateboarding champion of the world. He was the first human being to do a 900. For those of you who don't know what a 900 is, it is a 360 is one spin. It is two and a half spins on a space uh, on a spaceboard, a skateboard. He's going into space to do this on a skateboard. Uh, he's doing two and a half rotations before he lands. He's he has over 20 video games with him in it or based off of him. He has three rides uh, that were named after him at Six Flags, uh, the, the Tony Hawk experience. Uh, he's been in films or on TV over 56 times, uh, and, and, and he is a legend in the skateboarding community and, quite frankly, in the exports community. And the other thing about Tony is that he's notoriously unrecognizable. That people, even though they know who Tony Hawk is and maybe some of the stuff he's done, they can't recognize him when he's with them. Uh, He was at a skateboard park with his son, and he was watching his son do stuff, and this kid comes up to him and says, hey, can you take a picture of me while I'm doing this trick? Uh, and he was on a BMX bike uh, while, while Tony is there on a skateboard, and he's like, sure, no problem. He takes a picture of him, and the kid comes back, and he says, hey, my name's Irving. What's your name? And he says, yeah, I'm Tony. And he says, yeah, like Tony Hawk, ha, 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 and rides off, right? He didn't realize that Tony Hawk was the guy that took the picture for him. Uh, He went with his family to go and get tested at a COVID-19 testing facility, and he shows up there, and and he hands the ID, which has his picture on it. Now, his name, full disclosure, is Anthony, uh, but he goes by Tony, and so the guy looks, and he says, Anthony Hawk, any relation to Tony Hawk? And he's like, yes, uh, we are we are related to Tony Hawk, and he says, "Are you pulling my leg?" And he's like, "Nope, we're directly related to Tony Hawk because he is Tony Hawk." Or, or when he went to the airport once, the TSA agent is is looking at his stuff, and he's like, "Oh, Anthony Hawk, man, that's almost as cool as Tony Hawk." And he was like, "Huh, thanks." Uh, thinking that he he knew who he was, uh, but he didn't. He said, I wonder what that guy is up to now. And Tony Hawk responds, this, because it was Tony Hawk. His favorite uh, comment comes from somebody that says, has anybody ever told you you look like a young Tony Hawk, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because then suddenly he's gotten younger. Uh, he, He has also been mistaken for other people because they recognize that he's somebody. They just don't know who he was. His favorite misrecognition is they thought he was Tom Brady. And he was like, that is a serious disservice to Tom Brady. Uh, but yes, he, he, he'll take it. Uh, so I want to introduce you guys, friends, church. This is Tony Hawk. If you ever see him in public, don't embarrass me. Um, be like, hey, Tony Hawk, my pastor thinks you're cool. Um, it, it's true. Uh, I, I think he's cool. This is Tony Hawk, the one who is hard, notoriously hard to recognize. Don't embarrass me. Let him know that you think he's cool or that I think he's cool, even if you don't think he's cool. What's interesting, though, is that we've all met people that maybe we run into somebody and we're like, I think I know you. Uh, or you, you see somebody at the airport and you're like, oh, hey, it's you, but it's not them. They just look familiar enough. Or maybe you meet somebody and you didn't have any idea who they were, like Tony Hawk. Or maybe you've met someone 
uh, and they seemed nice at first, and you were like, oh, I could be friends with them, and you found out later that they were super selfish or super self-absorbed, and you didn't want to be friends, or maybe you met somebody, and they were distant at first, and, and, and only to become your very best friend in all of life, or, or perhaps, perhaps you met a boy or a girl, and you thought to yourself, they are out of my league. Uh, and you ended up getting married to that person. Uh, we, we've all had some of those, those times when we uh, don't recognize the person that we are interacting with for who they really are. Uh, what's interesting is Jesus had that same problem. It wasn't a problem of being recognized because the people recognized who Jesus was. They just didn't understand who Jesus was was supposed to be. When the people had an expectation of Messiah, it was not what Jesus came here to do. It was not who Jesus truly was. And Jesus spent a lot of his ministry trying to shift people's understanding of what Messiah was all about. There's a scene uh, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, Matthew Levi is his name, was a tax collector. He was called out of the tax booth by Jesus and, and starts following Jesus. And, and uh, he records this interaction between the disciples and Jesus where uh, Jesus has brought them together and he's starting to explain to them that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and die. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, that he knew that he had to go there and that it was going to end in his death. And now he's trying to explain some of that to his disciples. And Peter, Peter isn't having any of it. Uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke Jesus. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter takes Jesus aside after Jesus explains to the disciples, and he's like, guys, this is what's going to happen. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you? He's like, this can't happen to you. You're, you're our hope and our expectation. You see, the problem was Jesus, uh, in, in his own mind, was different than what the people expected from him. It's the idea of exception versus reality. And Jesus ultimately rebukes Peter and says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God. Instead, you have in mind the things of this world. And, and he's saying, hey, you can't hold me back from this. This is who I am and who I've come to become. And this is why I've come. And, but the preconception versus reality was difficult for the people to overcome. Here's, here was the preconception, the Messiah, who Peter and the disciples believed Jesus to be. The Messiah was to come as a conquering king, to kick out Rome and be geopolitically in charge of Israel, raise Israel up to the status it had had in former days, and to be in authority over Israel and over the entirety of the world to put Israel back on the map, to kick Rome out and be powerful. And Jesus said, that's not why I've come. I came so that I could be sacrificed, so that I could give my life for you. And, and it was hard for them to get past. They misunderstood who Jesus was, what his mission really was. And so Jesus 
wants to cement that picture in them. He knows he doesn't have a lot of time. And so he gets Peter and James and John, and they go on a field trip together. They go to the top of a mountain. It says this in Matthew's gospel, right after, right after the rebuke, it says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high, up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He became radiant. Uh, that's going to be important for us to understand here in a little bit, but they're, they're, the way that they're describing it is, is that it's whiter than anything could possibly be, and, and he shone like the sun. He was glowing. He was radiant. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is a powerful scene in the, the New Testament, and, and it links so, so dramatically the New and the Old Testament together. Here's what's happening. Uh, in, in this one scene, all the Jewish boys on top of the mountain, they totally get what's happening because this isn't the first time that a person has become radiant. Uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Moses and the Torah, they heard that Moses went up to the mountaintop to receive the commandments. And when he came down, his face was radiant as well. And so it's this linking of Jesus and Moses. I mean, if you want to uh, look at a superhero of the faith in the Old Testament, the only person that stands above, head and shoulders above everybody is going to be Moses. He liberated the children of, Egypt, of Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, it was God that did all of those things, but Moses was his mouthpiece, his spokesperson. And so this scene is not lost on them, that, that Jesus and Moses have this tie together of being transfigured. It says this in Exodus, the story of when, uh, when Moses brought the children of Egypt out, the book of Exodus, it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, the tablets that contain the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. He went up on the mountain, and in the presence of God, his face began to be radiant. It glowed. We don't know exactly what this looked like because it's, <laughs> we don't have a picture uh, of Moses glowing or being radiant, but it was enough for the people to notice at a distance. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. They were afraid to come near him because something's wrong with Moses. He's glowing. I'm not sure what's going on here. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near to him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. This was so that he could make them comfortable, so that he wasn't walking around glowing when, uh, when they were there, and he, he would leave the veil on his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with them, he removed the veil until he came out. 
And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. So every time Moses went into God's presence, he began to be radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. This isn't the first time that someone has been radiant. This is the second time that this kind of thing has happened, and, and they put two and two together really quick. And, and um, I mean, my whole deal is, hey, Moses, you got something on your face. But here's the, the, the idea is that, you know, this, this radiance was there because he had been directly in the presence of God. And now Jesus is being radiant. And, and, and the, the guy's are overwhelmed, to say the least. I mean, this, this has to be something pretty powerful, because not only is he being radiant, uh, also Moses and Elijah are there. And how they know it's Moses and Elijah, I don't know if Moses was like, hi, I'm Moses. And Elijah was like, yeah, and I'm Elijah. Uh, but Moses and Elijah are there in the presence of Jesus, and they're talking we don't even get to know what they're talking about. My guess is uh, exactly what was happening, what was about to happen for Jesus, that he was on path and on track to do what he needed to do. And, and Peter, overwhelmed, says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I'll put up these shelters so that we have some place to stay because we should stay right here. This is amazing. Lord, there's Moses and Elijah, and, and you're glowing. I, I don't even know what to… I, I love Peter because he, he, he doesn't know even how to respond. I mean, what else would you do? This is amazing. We should just stay right here. And while Peter is talking about building three shelters, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And the voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, this is the same scene that we have from the Old Testament again because the cloud of the presence of God would descend on Mount Sinai when Moses would go and meet with God. It's the cloud that demonstrates that God is there. And in the midst of, of what's happening on the mountaintop, Jesus being radiant, Moses and Elijah, now the cloud of the presence of God descends on the top of the mountain and they are terrified. In this mountaintop experience, they are closer to God than they have ever been. Uh, they, they, Peter, Peter is absolutely right. Hey, man, we'll just build a few houses up here and we'll just stay. We'll just stay in God's presence in this moment. But when they heard the voice in the cloud, the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. They, they, they were afraid because they know that they are not worthy. Just like we would know, we aren't worthy. And they fall on their faces, terrified that they will be struck down for their unworthiness to be in the presence of God. But Jesus comes to them and touches them and says, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The mountaintop moment had passed. They were still on the mountain, but the moment had passed. 
Jesus had, had spoken with Elijah and Moses. He had been transfigured. He was radiant. And then the presence of God in the cloud comes and, and is present with the disciples, and they are afraid. They are afraid. And then Jesus gathers them up and brings them back down the mountain. So the question is, why, why was this a thing that happened? What was the significance? Uh, other than the disciples now have seen Jesus transfigured, and, and, and Jesus explains, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, don't talk about this, because the significance of it would be lost on others. This would become the thing people talked about instead of the resurrection which was going to happen. I, I, I think the key for us to understand is Jesus was having a hard time getting the disciples to understand who he was. And so he takes them on this field trip, and they go up the mountain, and they have this experience, and God says, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I think this is when, when Jesus is coming down from the mountaintop and talking to them and saying, hey, don't tell anybody. He looks over at Peter, and this is just me, I get it, but he gives him a little wink. Like, you remember when you took me aside and you tried to rebuke me? This is why it's not possible, because I know who I am. And in the, in, in the very beginning of the gospel story, we talk about the baptism that reassured Jesus uh, of who he was and the mission that he was on. And I believe that the transfiguration does that same thing. It reassures the disciples that this Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe not the one they expected, but the one that is sent from God, and He is the one that will do the work, and now they too can get to work. The truth is this, a mountaintop experience can grow your faith so you can go in faith so that you can go in faith into the world, so that you can get to work as well, because you have experienced the presence of God in a powerful and profound way. It increases your faith, and it inspires you to act. It increases your faith, and it inspires you to act. That's what those mountaintop experiences are for. They're not so that we can stay. They're so that we can be inspired. They're not so that we can build houses and, and remain in a holy, small community. It's so that we can know that we are on mission and ministry for the King of all creation, and that Jesus himself is the Messiah, and that we can follow wherever he leads us, that we can go into his world, that we can proclaim his good news so that we can create a world that has an understanding of the gospel. And maybe you're, you're sitting out there and you're going, well, what does that look like? How do we do that? What, what can I do to make a difference? And, and my hope is that you'll join me in this. Ask God to reveal to you each day how to be a disciple. What is it Lord, that you want me to do this day to be your disciple. 
Is it something that I need to work on in me? Is it something that I need to go out? Is it a mountaintop experience that I need to be present with you for? What is it I need to do this day so that I may be your disciple? And then ask God to send you each day to live into discipleship. Let me be your discipleship, a disciple. Let me do all the things that you want me to. Send me into your world so that I can be your disciple, your representative, uh, a version of you in, in, in me, that people will notice Jesus in my life and in the way I live. And finally, ask God to share the Holy Spirit with you so that you can serve and love others. Jesus says you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Serve one another. We have, we have a world that desperately, desperately needs Jesus. And we can share the hope that we have. We have been called so that we can be sent. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's get to work. Pray with me. Holy One, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the hope we have in you and the promise of life that you offer to us. God, I just pray that in this moment, that you would surround us with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we would recognize that at this time your presence is so powerful and profound that we can have that mountaintop experience so that we can be inspired to go, so that our faith is increased, so that we can go and be on mission for the ministry and mission of the kingdom of God. Let us be your people. Send us into your world to love this world radically the way that you love us, to care and share faith with this world radically the way that you have first done with us, and to be the people that you want us to be. Father, help us to be more like Jesus now and always. And we pray this together in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of us agreed and said, amen.